Father, we lift up the rest of our worship service. It's our desire that everything we do here would bring glory and honor to you, would be pleasing in your sight, all of the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray. And now as we come to your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, pray that you would speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us this morning. Lord, we we know we need to hear you speak. We know we need your guidance, and so we come. Open ears and open hearts to hear you. Father, we ask that you would remove anything that would distract us, anything that would hinder us from hearing you, any fears, frustrations, anxieties, worries, busyness, anything that would hinder us, Lord, we pray you that you would remove that from us so that we would be able to hear you speak clearly and powerfully this morning. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. We're continuing to work our way through the book of Revelation, looking at Revelation 13 and 14 this morning. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, all inhabitants of the earth, will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written on the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed, and he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, great and small, rich and poor, 
free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead or on their hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write! Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called out in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them in the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Sobering passage. I was thinking about this week um, an incident we had with our kids when they were little. They had gotten in a fight, and one of them got angry and decided they were going to run away. I will not tell you which one it is. You can take a guess on your own. 
She didn't get far. Um, and so we sat her down and asked her a couple of questions. We asked her, where were you going to go? She said, I was going to go live with somebody else. Okay. Um, so I asked her, how would you know whether that other person would be good or bad? She said, I'd just ask. <laughs> okay. So I said, do you think a bad person would tell you the truth? Or would they lie to you? She thought about it and she said, well, I would still ask, but if they told me they were good, I would know they were lying and I wouldn't stay there. (laughs) Which is funny, but then years later, I was having a similar conversation, not quite as funny, with a young adult who was playing around with Wicca and witchcraft. And uh, this young adult was trying to cast spells and play around with a Ouija board. And I said, stop messing around with this stuff. This is not a game to be messing around with. The only thing you're going to, only spirits you're going to come in contact through this are demons. And she said, oh, no, 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 there's good and bad spirits. I only interact with the good spirits. And I said, well, how do you know? Oh, I just ask them. Well, do you think a bad spirit would tell you the truth? Or do you think a bad spirit would lie to you? I mean, isn't that the essence of a bad spirit? I said, besides, the Bible says there's only two types of spirits. There's angels and demons. And we're not told to interact with angels through Ouija boards and spells. We're actually told, stay away from that. The only spirits you're going to interact with in that way are demonic. But, but underneath kind of both of these stories is this misunderstanding, I think, that, that we all have, is, is this misunderstanding that we think the bad guys are going to look bad. We think that the bad guy is going to come riding in on a black horse with a black trench coat and a black cowboy hat, and we're going to go, ah, bad guy, stay away from him, right? Or we think that you know, the witch is going to be this old, ugly old woman with a wart on her nose and the crinkly, pointy hat. Or that any bad person is going to look like the Disney villains that we grew up watching, where you'd be able to pick them out right away, that they're going to be bad. And yet, most often, the worst enemies come wearing nice clothes, a shiny smile, and a twinkle in their eye. Um, And most villains come as the answer to all your problems, as a Savior. And that's what we see in in Revelation 13. It's really interesting as we read through Revelation 13 and we see these, these two beasts, ugly, distorted beasts, and yet the world looks at them and does not see them as beasts. The world sees them as lovely, beautiful, powerful. They, they, they see them as saviors of the world. I mean, at the first beast, it says, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, which we already talked about last week, as, or a couple weeks ago, as Satan, because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? 
It's the whole world going after the beast, saying, wow, look how powerful, look how glorious, look how majestic is the beast. And there's even a contrast in, in the last few chapters there, when, when judgment has been coming against people, they've cried out, who can stand before God, right? And now the world is saying, who can stand before the beast? Who can fight the beast? No one. The beast is so powerful. Nobody can, can push back against the beast. And so the whole world has been led astray to follow the beast and to see him as a savior. They don't recognize his beastliness. And so there's obviously a lot of questions about who the beast is. John gives us a description of the beast. He says, the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And uh, as I've told you before, as we interpret the book of Revelation, we always have to go back to the Old Testament and look for these images. Where are these images in the Old Testament, and what do they mean there? And so, um, as you read through Revelation 13 and 14, as most of the book of Revelation, there, it repeatedly is looking back to the book of Daniel. And all of the visions in Daniel. So you need to read those. And in Daniel, we see these three beasts in Daniel. He sees this vision. And there are four great beasts come up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion who had eagle's wings. As I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so Daniel gets this vision, and you're thinking, okay, there's a bunch of weird creatures going on. What does that all mean? And later in the book of Daniel, we're told what each one of these beasts mean. Represent. They each represent a different kingdom that's going to come. It represents the Persians, the Greeks, Rome eventually. But our beast that we see in Revelation 13 is like a combination of all of them, isn't he? He has, he has some parts that are leopard, some parts that are bear, some parts that are lion. And so he, he's this representation, this beast that comes as a representation of all of these other kingdoms kind of the beast of all beasts, the, the kingdom of all kingdoms. And in Daniel, these kingdoms represent the kingdoms of men apart from God, the kingdoms of men who have rejected God and went on it themselves. They, they thought they were the saviors of the world. And we've seen these types of kingdoms throughout history, haven't we? We've seen Egypt way back when God's people were in Egypt, this powerful kingdom that thought they were the savior of the world. In Daniel, we see Babylon, who, who everyone worshipped and thought they were the most powerful and, and trusted in them. In Jesus' time, we saw Rome as this kingdom that was powerful and yet rejected God, but everyone thought they could find salvation there. And I'll just say it, to be honest, we're finding the United States becoming one of those kingdoms, rejecting God, setting itself up against God, 
and everyone looking to us for salvation. And these kingdoms, I mean, the whole world marvels at these kingdoms, the, this beast. Say, Look at the power and the might that they have. Look at the authority they have. Look at the beauty that they have. And they worship them. They put their complete trust in them. And they say, who is like this kingdom? Who could ever stand against this kingdom? But they don't recognize that there's something going on underneath all of this. It says, and to the beast, the dragon gave his power and his authority, his throne and his great authority. That, you know, why is the beast so majestic and powerful and authoritative? It's because it says that the beast gave his authority there. And uh, the point is, is that whenever you see a kingdom that has rejected God, spits in God's face, and yet they're power, they have power and authority and majesty, John's saying underneath that is Satan. And Satan's giving them power and authority and might in order to wage war on God's people. Remember, the last chapter ended, Revelation 12 ended with the dragon saying he was going to wage war against God's people. He went out to wage war against them. And now we're seeing, here's how the dragon wages war against God's people. And one is through humanly kingdoms who reject God. And we see that just, I mean, that's why the beast, it says, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. I mean, these nations hate God. They hate God. They mock God. They blaspheme God and who He is. And not only that, it says they, they mock and they blaspheme and they hate those who dwell in heaven with Him. That's God's people. They mock, blaspheme, belittle, push God's people off to the side. I mean, we've seen it over and over and over again throughout history, haven't we? But even more than that, it says, and the beast was allowed to make war on the saints, these are God's people, and to conquer them. So these kingdoms not only mock and belittle and blaspheme God and his people, but they're actually waging war, flat out war on God's people, trying to conquer them, trying to eradicate them and remove them. And yet, people are still tempted to worship them. People are still tempted to see them as beautiful and glorious and powerful and majestic, even as they wage war on God's people. And then the, the scene kind of cuts away, and we see another beast. Um, and this beast looks like a lamb. Catch that. This beast looks like a lamb. Looks like the lamb like Jesus, but when this lamb speaks, it sounds like a dragon, All right? So catch that. Get that picture in your mind, this, this innocent lamb looks like Jesus, but when it speaks and when it opens its mouth, it sounds like a dragon. And it says, and, and this, this beast, it exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast 
whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. You start to notice some similarities here. Remember the two witnesses that represent the church. What do they do? They call down fire from heaven. Now this beast is doing that too. He's, He's acting like a prophet of old. He's he's talking about worship. We need to worship. We need to worship. But he's actually leading people to worship the beast, not God. He's, he's, He's calling down fire from heaven like the prophets of old, but he's not a real prophet. He's he's doing great signs and wonders like the prophets of old, but he's not a prophet. He's a false prophet. And he's a false prophet who's inside the church. Because he looks like a lamb. It's not, it's, not, this is, it's not someone outside the church. It's someone who looks like a lamb, looks like Jesus, looks like he's, he speaks like he should be in the church. He acts like he should be in the church. He does powerful signs that people look up to in the church. But underneath it all is the dragon. When, they, when the false prophets speak... They speak like the dragon. Did God really say? When these false prophets act, their actions smell like a dragon. And they're deceiving people and they're leading them away into idolatry. And it says the false prophets even persecute those who refuse to listen to their false teaching. They spread false teaching and people say, I'm not going to go there. And so they come after them and they, they attack them. And, and they're trying to get them to worship the beast. They're actually causing people to not worship God and trust in God, but to trust in these human kingdoms that have rejected God and are spitting in His face. They're, they're getting people to put their hope and trust there, which is what the mark of the beast is. It's a sign of those who have put their hope and trust in the beast. Just like the mark of God that's put on His people, right? We are told that there was a seal placed upon God's people. His name was written on their foreheads to mark us as God's people, to mark us as His own, those who put their hope and trust in Him. That same mark is figurative when the mark of the beast comes. It's a mark of those who have put their hope and trust in human kingdoms. And they've been marked by that. They're, they're sealed as their own. They're, they're a member of that kingdom, not a member of the kingdom of God. And that's why it says those who don't have the mark of the beast, they don't get to participate in the economy. They can't buy and sell because they've rejected that kingdom. Just like those who don't have the mark of God on their forehead don't get to benefit from the kingdom of God. And so when you choose not to be part of the kingdom of the beast or the kingdom of men, you get kind of pushed off to the side and, and say, people say, all right, you don't get to benefit from us and shoved out to the edges. And I, I kind of wanted to move on at this point, but I figured I should mention the number of the beast because, you know, the mark of the beast and the number of the beast, that gets everybody's attention. There's a lot of conversation there and there's a lot of convers- a lot of opinions about what it means and what they're talking about, and I will give you um, what I think um, when we when we measure this with scripture. 
Um, and we're told in the passage, actually, I mean, when you think of the number six, right? So we're given the number six three times. Six, six, six is the number of the beast. And so you think, all right, all these numbers mean something. They're all symbolic. So where's six in the Bible? Well, it's the day that humanity was created. We were created on the sixth day. And so, and it even says it in the passage, this is the number of man. And some translations say a man, but I think it's actually more accurate to say the number of like mankind, humanity, because that's the day when we were created. But also a lot of commentators point out that that the number seven is this number of completion, perfection, and six is almost there, but not quite. And so if, if the number would have been 777, you would hear the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. But instead it's 666, and you should hear someone crying out, imperfect, imperfect, imperfect. Almost there, enough to be deceptive, enough for people to think that there's perfection and glory and power and majesty there, but not living up, not quite there. It's really the number of all of humanity's attempts to usurp God. The epitome of human strength, and yet the epitome of imperfection. But when you talk like that, it's easy for us to sit back and think, all right, this is, this is all talking, the beast, you know, both beasts, they are the epitome of imperfection. And so we would easily recognize that and, uh, and reject it, you know, because it's the epitome of imperfection. That would be easy to recognize. And yet the world sees them as perfect and holy and powerful and mighty. They, they look at the kingdoms and they think, that's where it's at. We put our hope and our trust there. This is the best we'll ever get. They, put, they look at the false prophets in the church and say, man, they are powerful and they are, they're giving good guidance. They've got big signs and wonders to, to awe the church. They can be used by God. And uh, they're viewed as the solution to everyone's problems. If we just get this guy, you know, he'll, he'll save everyone. If we listen to this kingdom, they'll save everyone, which is why they lead everyone astray. It's why so many people are tempted to listen to the false prophets and to follow the beast. So do you have a knot in your stomach? <laughs> I, I did. I, was, I wrote, you know, now you know how I felt all week as I wrote this sermon. There's kind of just a knot sitting there because there's, a, there's this weightiness to this, right? We, th- that's what John's doing. He intentionally wants each of us to kind of get a little bit of a knot in our stomach and to recognize that we could be tempted too. The beast is leading so many people astray, we could be tempted too. In his day, the kingdoms were coming down on them and they could easily walk away from the church and trust in the kingdom that was pounding on them and beating on them. And he said, that temptation is there for you in the church. There were false prophets all over in the church leading people astray, whispering like the dragon throughout the churches. And he said, you could easily be led astray as well. And so don't fall into that. And that's why he says, 
both the false prophet, both both the dragon. They both have their, or both the other, both beasts have their authority from the dragon. He says, don't be tempted to fall into that. And so there should be this kind of weight and, and heaviness. We should wonder whether we've put our hope and trust in human kingdoms. We should question whether we're doing that. We should question whether some of the prophets that we think are so great and powerful and glorious, we should question whether they're actually leading us astray. But there is hope. There's hope in the midst of this passage. There's one word that we need to see in, uh, in Revelation 13. It comes up twice. It's the word allowed. It says, the first beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So the question is, who's allowing them to do this? And the assumed answer, the way it was written, is God is, which may not bring you much comfort right away, right? Like, wait, God is allowing the beast to wage war on his people. God is allowing this false prophet to lead people astray. It doesn't seem like comfort at first, and yet I always ask, would it be more comforting to think that God was not in control of this? That the dragon and the two beasts were just running around with no one having authority over them, no one controlling them. That doesn't provide us any more comfort. There's more comfort knowing that we have a just and holy and righteous God who's in control. And we can trust that holy and just and good God that whatever He allows is for our own good and for His own glory. It will be for the good of His people Remember, everything in Revelation has a kind of this dual purpose of either bringing judgment on those who've rejected God or that same work being used to bless God's people. And so in some way, we don't always understand how, and John doesn't even explain it, some way God will use us to judge those who've rejected Him, but will use it to bless His people. But we also find comfort when we read this part. As all of, all of the world is going to worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the li- book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That means that everyone whose name has been written in the book of life, everyone who has been sealed by God, they will not worship the beast. They will not be deceived by the false prophet. Because God has put a stamp on them and He said, I've got you in my hand and you're not letting, I'm not going to let go of you. And so all of the world will be running after the beast. All of the world will even be tempted to worship the beast, be tempted to be led astray by these false prophets. And yet God says, you are mine and I will not let you go and I will not let you be deceived and you will not give your authority, you will not give allegiance to this beast and you will not be deceived by the false prophet, you will endure to the end. Which is the main theme of both of these chapters. It comes up once in each chapter. In in chapter 13, it says, here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So after it's talking about the beast, it says, now this is a call, people of God, for you to endure and keep the faith 
of Jesus Christ. And then in the middle of chapter 14, he says it again. This is a call, people of God. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, yeah, the world is going to go crazy. Everyone will be tempted to worship and put their hope in these humanly kingdoms. There's going to be false prophets who are leading people astray, and you'll be tempted to listen to the false prophets, and you'll be tempted to put your trust in these human kingdoms. But he says, but as God's people, we must endure till the end. We must not give in. And he says part of that enduring is keeping the commandments of God and keeping your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And he says, guess what? You will do that because God has got a hold of you. He's marked you. You will do that. He will hold on to you. So, so you got to keep your eyes on him. You keep moving forward and uh, endure to the end. But one of the really powerful pictures in these chapters is that we don't just endure. We, we don't have the option of just um, hiding in a bunker somewhere until Jesus comes, trying to stay away from the craziness. No matter how tempting that is. I mean, just this week, I don't remember, I was watching some something. I don't even want to get it. I was watching something that just was driving me crazy, and I thought, man, the, this is nuts. And I looked at Rachel and said, let's just move off to a cabin in the woods in northern Wisconsin. Just get away from everything. This is just, the world's going crazy. But we don't, as, as tempting as that is, and as nice as that sounds sometimes, Jesus said, no, <laughs> you don't have that opportunity. But he also didn't give us the opportunity to be in the world watching it go crazy and then just spend all of our time whining and complaining and moping. I'll just keep going until I'm done. That's not the option either. We're actually, the picture is of God's people singing. Singing in the middle of this fight. It says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And that's happening at the same time as the beast waging war on God's people. They're singing a song. And the new song is a song of victory. As the false prophet is in the church leading God's people astray, the picture is that God's people are singing. They're enduring and they're singing songs of praise and glory and worship to God. And it's a song of victory. It's this, it's this picture not of a whining warrior... And not a picture of someone running away from the fight, but it's a picture of Christians being joyful warriors in the midst of the fight, remaining faithful to their God and singing His praises. And as we kind of go through this season of Lent, we're reminded that that's the picture that we're given of Jesus. As we meditate on His life and His death and His resurrection, we see Jesus as a joyful warrior. Because Jesus was at war with both beasts. Jesus had kingdoms of men waging war against him. Right? That's what killed him. Jesus had false prophets trying to lead him astray. Even Satan himself came to him in the desert trying to lead him astray. 
and Jesus faced trial and struggle and difficulty as these two beasts waged war against him, and yet he endured. But he did more than just endure. He, he conquered, but he did it with joy. And so I just want to end by reading a passage from Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and continue to thank you for being our God. Thank you for the promise that you've given us that you are God and we are your people and you will not let go. And Father, we come to you and we confess that we are often tempted to put our trust elsewhere. We're tempted to be led astray by false teachers. We're tempted to trust in earthly kingdoms. And we ask your forgiveness. Father, we know, we truly know that you are the only place where we should truly put our hope and trust. Your words are the only words we should listen to. And so, Father, we not only ask your forgiveness, but we ask that you would work in us, transform us so that we put our trust in you and not in any earthly kingdom and that we listen to you and not any of the false prophets in the world. Lord, hold on to us. Keep us faithful. Help us not to be led astray. But also, Father, help us to be the joyful warriors you've called us to be in the world. Help us to continue singing a new song. Help us not to fall into whining and bitterness and complaining, but help us to continue singing a new song of victory as we wait for your second coming and the redeeming of your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.